When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today is your lucky day. You could redeem sweeps coins for a $50,000 cash prize at Chumba Casino. Join over 1 million players at Chumba Casino, America's favorite online social casino. It's your turn. Play for free at ChumbaCasino.com. That's C-H-U-M-B-A Casino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We talk to a lot of people on the imbalance history of rock and roll who have written stuff. But Ray Coob here with my partner in crime. Marcus Goldman, how you doing? And writer and socialist philosopher, I would say. Gregor Gall is our guest on the imbalance history today because he's written a book that caught our eye and it really intrigued us, Gregor. The Punk Rock Politics of Joe Strummer. Whoo, what a book. Hello, uh, and thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. We appreciate you taking the time. There's so much information in this book, and the punk rock politics of Joe Strummer is a fascinating subject. One of the questions that comes up early is how many people were affected by Joe Strummer and his politics? And you, in your research, had found out that there were many people after he passed away had sent emails and notes saying how much he had influenced them. So what did you learn about people in regards to how much Joe Strummer's politics influenced them? Well, the first thing I uh, start with is that myself being a Clash fan and a Strummer fan, I was aware that he had significant influence on the development of my politics and my political education. And speaking to others, Clash fans in person and you know, by email and so on, this um, phrase kept on coming up which was the clash or strummer changed my life. And that became the, the kind of key rationale for writing the book, in terms of understanding what exactly did people mean by that? Did they mean that they picked up a guitar and became a lead guitarist or a rhythm guitarist? Was it of that kind of musical, cultural nature? Or was it, to me, something more important, which was that they became influenced to be on the left, to become a socialist or a radical? And if they did, did they become active in terms of pursuing and prosecuting their politics. So there were sort of the kind of qualitative aspects of it. And then, of course, the question that you've alluded to is just how many of these people were there in the time of when the clash was going on from 76 to 86 and afterwards when the Mescaleros had been formed by Strummer and then, of course, after the 22nd of December 2002 after his death. So I wanted to get a handle on that. I, I knew when I was starting to do the research in the book that there was no way I could give a definitive answer to how many people were influenced by Strummer. And that's proved to be correct because since the book has come out a couple of months ago and I'm starting to do talks and people are getting in contact with me, I'm now starting to find 
many, many more people influenced by Strummer in, in the way that I detail that over 100 people were in the book. So that's why it was. And underneath all that, I would just take one step back. Again, thinking about myself as a young kid in the 1980s, music to me was terribly important, more important than anything else, more important than film, more important than literature. Uh, and therefore it dawned on me that one of the reasons I think why the left in Britain, probably so in America as well, isn't more influential than it is. And it's we know that the left isn't influential very much in America, even with the likes of Bernie Saunders. And it's still not very influential in Britain. One of the reasons that I thought was likely to be the case is that music as a form of cultural reproduction is not used very much in order to speak to young people and educate them, you know, ways that are outside of classrooms and outside of textbooks. That's why I wanted to write the book when it comes down to it. Gregor, I don't know what the number of people that you've tallied so far that have had had that influence in their life by the clash, but you can add me to the list as someone who was the right age at the right time and got the influence of the music right down to Sandinista, influencing my views on what was then considered extreme leftist politics when it came to Sandinistas in Nicaragua and a lot of the, what was going on in Central America. That's underlying, but it wasn't the real thrust at first. We were all into punk rock or starting to get into it, and they were the only band that mattered. So that's what drew us to it as a Generation One fan. Given the wide variety of topics that you've written about, what drew you to Strummer particularly? Joe Strummer had a number of unique qualities. I think he is one of those people as a lyricist, you know, for setting that to music, who is up there with the likes of Bob Dylan, Bob Marley, Woody Guthrie, John Lennon. I think he's that good. He's up there. And I think when you look at his art of being a lyricist, what to me stands out, probably two or three things. One is that he can deal with a number of subjects within just one set of lyrics. So literally within 16 lines, you take, for example, Washington Bullets off the Sandinista album of 1980. He deals with the coup in Chile, the blockade by the United States of Cuba. He looks at the situation in Afghanistan. You know, those are three key world events. In, uh, I wanted the them to keep making records, Gregor, because it was like a current events thing in yep. music form at that time. And I know I'm a little older than you and Marcus, and you guys were both really affected by all this. So I'm really interested in all of this from a sociological standpoint. Oh, mama, mama, look there. You shouldn't have playing in the street again. Don't you know what happened down there? A youth of 14 got shot down there. The cocaine guns jammed downtown. The killing clowns of blood money men. Shooting Washington bullets again As every cell in Chile will tell The cries of the tortured men Remember Allende and the days before Before the army came Please remember Victor Hara In the Santiago Stadium Esperada Oh, Washington bullets again you just mentioned the events in songs, but through your research, you said that there were only really two songs that were specific, Spanish Bombs and Washington Bullets, and that his lyrics really were an anytime, anywhere relatability, as in 
people in America could relate to their understanding of what he was saying or the message, and the kids in Europe could understand what he was saying in the message, but it was different because cultures and lives are different there. So he was able to capture the feelings of youth in general and the younger generation in general and make it relatable. And you pointed that out on page 10 with the six reasons his lyrics are fit for any place, anywhere, anytime. What I was going to say was that his skill as a lyricist isn't just about being able to encapsulate a number of different issues in, you know, 16 lines of a song. And I could quote White Man and Hammersmith Pally or whatever. But there's two aspects that I think stand out and really make Strummer a great lyricist. One is that there's a universality to his lyrics, which you just alluded to, that people in different countries at different times can understand or get a handle on what he's talking about. It speaks to them in an emotional but also a political way. So there's that universality. But there's also, which is a kind of like a cross space, but there's also this aspect of timelessness, which he writes about, and it's encapsulated in terms of being anti-authoritarianism, pro-freedom, pro-liberty, anti-oppression and exploitation. And in most of his lyrics, they're not terribly detailed. They deal with themes, if you like, in a general way. So you don't have to know too much about anything specific to get the sense of what he's talking about in his lyrics. And that means that, for example, when I was doing research for the book, one woman that I came across in the States, she had um, been working with uh, in the Bernie Saunders campaign to get the nomination for the Democratic Party, which obviously then went to Hillary Clinton. So this is back in like in the run up to 2018. And uh, she came across uh, Spanish Bombs, the song, and it made her scour the, the back catalogue of Strummer and the Clash. And that's what she found out, that as a young 30-year-old woman in New York, there were so many things in those lyrics that spoke to her and how she was developing politically. And just as one further aside, she didn't find that in other people's lyrics. I mean, I'm not sure whether she likes Rage Against the Machine or some other bands, but it was clear that Strummer, with The Clash in particular, but also the Mescaleros, was able to do and say some things that few others were able to do in quite such a powerful way. Spanish songs in
to follow that, you've already mentioned the radical left or the socialist left and the progressive. And on page eight, you say radical left progressive covers those expressing anti-racist, anti-fascist, pro-feminist, pro-worker and social democratic sentiments. And in your opinion, do you feel like the media is vilifying these type of beliefs by labeling them far left or radical left. And doesn't it depend upon which country you're talking about the media being in? Because we're on everywhere. I think it's easier to say that you are left-wing or socialist in, in Britain than it is in the United States, notwithstanding things like Bernie Saunders' campaign and the growth of the Democratic Socialists of America, which is now the biggest left-wing organization in America since the Communist Party in the 1930s. So, you know, there are changes, but overall, the situation is still very, very difficult for the left. So, yes, labels are used by different groups, powerful groups, elites and so on in society to either legitimise or delegitimise certain things. And certainly the way that left-wing people, socialists, are talked about by the media is a way of doing that. And of course, you will have that in spades with the likes of Fox News and, and even CNN. So that goes on and that does make it all the more interesting that people are still finding the lyrics of Strummer and then finding meaning in them but also being influenced by them because, again, to speaking to the core of the reason why I wrote the book, I wanted to find out about how people were inspired but also sustained by the lyrics of Joe Strummer. And just one example that springs to mind is uh, a teacher in Scotland. Um, so he's teaching kids who are the ages of about 13 up to about 18. And in his form room, if you like, the room that all the kids in his class start off in the morning, above the blackboard is the words, the future is unwritten, which is something that Strummer wrote from around the time just before Combat Rock in 1982 was uh, released. And what Strummer, I think, clearly meant, not necessarily in a Marxist sense, but Strummer meant that it's up to people to create their own destiny, you know, essentially go out there, get on with it and do it. Now that is in a whole spheres of life. It's your personal life. It might be to do in your relationships with your partner, your family, your kids, but it's also in the wider political sense. If you want change, change isn't going to come as a result of waiting upon other people to do it. You've got to be part of making that change yourself. Sometimes that means voting. Sometimes that means going out in the streets. After the debacle of that campaign by the DNC, were you disappointed that Bernie didn't start a legitimate third party in the U.S.? Just on the issue of Bernie Saunders, yes. I mean, he had this group called, I think it was called something like Revolution Now, which was kind of almost just maybe embryonic. Or yeah. it was, Never happened, it was so, though. It was stillborn, yeah, yeah. It's disappointing that nothing organizationally came out of the Bernie Saunders campaign. But I have to say, that that's true of the previous campaigns he has run for the, the Democratic Party nomination. And I think from what I do know of him, it's also true when he's been elected to the Senate for Vermont and so on. So unfortunately, he's, although he does go out and camp and so on, he's clearly quite an individual and is, doesn't necessarily want to be the leader of a party, which I think he probably should be. So I think it's disappointing. Having said that, of course, I think the, the one organisation that did clearly benefit from his campaign was the Democratic Socialists of America, which AOC is, uh, is associated with and there are several other members as representatives that are also associated with it. What's interesting when you say about you should always vote, that I believe that is to be the case, you should vote. But interestingly, towards the end of his life, Strummer was actually very much against voting and I'd like to explain why because it seems uh, 
strange thing for Stomach to have um, saved. Well, that's good because I was going to ask you about those last years of his life where his views and his outlook and, and the way he lived seemed to change some. And I thought, well, if anybody's going to have a good insight on that, it's going to be Gregor. So fill us in. Well, let me take a few steps back and talk about where he comes from politically. So he's 16 in 1968. 1968 was a year of revolt around the world, whether it was against the Vietnam War or Black civil rights in America. The general strike in May 1968 in Paris was similar things, albeit not quite as radical going on in Britain. So he comes of age at that time and doesn't use those kind of subjects, those issues in his first lyrics when he writes for the main band he had before the clash, which called the 101ers. He doesn't write about them. But when he joins the clash and Bernie Rhodes, who's the manager that brings the band together, he says, right about what's important and he starts drawing on those kind of things. And he outlines the clash manifesto in a music paper called the New Musical Express, the NME, in December 1976, and he says, The Clash were anti-fascist, were anti-racist, were anti-influence, were pro-creativity. Now that's progressive and liberal, but it's not socialist. And it takes him about three or four years to become a socialist. That is around the time that London Calling, the album was released in late 79. It's clearly evident when Sandinista, the album, was released in 1980. In addition to the songs of Washington Bullets, there's a song on Sandinista, the album, called The Equalizer, which, if you read the lyrics, you will realise it's a call for a general strike. The refrain for that is, put down the tools. We don't want no boss. So he moves to the left in the time that he's in the clash and he stays that way for about 10 years. But in the early 1990s, and as that decade progresses, he becomes disillusioned with two things. One is the way that capitalism is developing in its, in its neoliberal phase. He doesn't use that term, but that's what he's talking about it, when capitalism becomes ever more corporate, everything becomes much more commercial. You know, people start being told, you know, the price of everything and the value of nothing, that kind of thing. And alongside that, he becomes disillusioned with the radical left in, in Britain, at any rate, isn't able to challenge that. And then when Tony Blair becomes leader of the Labour Party in Britain in 1994. He basically accommodates to Thatcherism, so the Labour Party moves from where it was on the left to become right wing. And this brings me to the point where Strummer says towards the end of his life, there's no point voting. He says that right. the only uh, the yeah, only I, vote... I think, wait, is, it's, is it really that desperate there? I mean, that's what it feels like when you say that, because that's where I was at one point about voting a long time ago. And it's so funny to hear that that was really where he was you know, as he was getting a little bit older than the young punk. No, it definitely was. He said it in interviews in Britain and in America. So let me just tell you what he said before to go on to explain whether it was a, a kind of credible thing to say. He says that the only vote that you've got is the pound in your pocket, or if you're in the States, obviously the dollar in your pocket. And he says the right-wing parties, and he's including the Labour Party in Britain at this point, they are so much in control, but also so much in thrall to the capitalists, the, the corporates, that voting doesn't change anything. I mean, it reflects this phrase, which is common, which is, if voting changes anything, they'd abolish it. They being the powerful, the rich and, rich and powerful. So he kind of comes to that view because he believes that all the potential for progress that existed 
earlier in his lifetime has come to nothing and he, as I say, becomes disillusioned by it. Maybe not depressed, but certainly disillusioned by it. And therefore he says, rather than go and spend your money in Starbucks, Walmart, McDonald's or wherever you might go, rather than give your money to the corporates, go to your little corner shop and spend it where it's a, a, one single family that runs the coffee shop or the grocery store. Do it that way. And what he's basically talking about is trying to have a form of ethical capitalism, small scale, decentralised, environmentally caring form of capitalism, which is clearly a big move away from when he was a socialist in the 1980s. I am critical of that in the book. I don't think it's a, a credible political strategy. I don't think it's a credible political aim because I don't think it's possible to have an ethical form of capitalism, certainly not in the way that he talks about it. The only way I, I think you could have anything that approximates to an ethical form of capitalism is where there is such intervention by the state to regulate and control. Or certain sectors of it. We'd want many of them, we'd want them in, in public ownership, so they couldn't, as is happening in Britain at the moment, they couldn't keep on increasing the prices of electricity and gas as is happening, and people are about to either freeze or go without food in order to pay for the electricity bills, but also in terms of the environmental damage. And, and one of the things that Strummer, Strummer became a humanist towards the end of his life, and part and parcel of that humanism was his concern for the environment. And although today, you know, 20 years on from when he died, we wouldn't necessarily think much of it, he did pioneer carbon offsetting um, through this project called Future Forests, where basically vans that were seeing pollution as a result of taking all their rig to a gig in terms of the buses and the, the pressing of their vinyl, their CDs, all that involved, you know, mandatory of energy and greenhouse gases. He did advocate and was part of this project to plant more trees to soak up that CO2. As I say today, carbon offsetting setting carbon trading is not seen as being the way to solve it because what it allows is that the rich corporations are able to buy up carbon credits from poor countries but still continue polluting. So there is an issue there, but he was pretty much ahead of his time at that time. So I think, you know, he did change considerably in his life. As I say, he became a humanist and that's embodied in that phrase, without people you're nothing, which a lot And so he still had that caring side to him. He didn't become cynical. Uh, he certainly didn't become reactionary. He was very much in support of, uh, the rights of refugees and immigrants and that kind of humanism is very much found in his lyrics and the albums that he uh, wrote for the Mescalero was particularly a song on the second album Logo Logo which is called Shakar Donetsk and that is a song about where the, there's a, the key line in the song is if the money is good you'll get there in the end what he means by that is that if people from Eastern Europe possibly even Ukraine, have enough money, they can pay the traffickers to get them to somewhere in Britain. And in the song, that person does get to Britain, but then disappears. That's a song which uh, speaks to the plight of immigrants and what happens to them if they die in a container because there's no fresh air, or if they die crossing the English Channel because of the storms you know, at sea. So he changes over his lifetime, which I think you know has to be recognised. I think sure. there are reasons why he changes. I think it's unfortunate that he didn't, and certainly in my view, remain the trench and socialist that he was earlier on. But he's honest in what he does. He does explain why he's changed. I think it's, you know, hats off to him for that. And just so I can finish on this point, the irony in all of this is that people who look to Strummer's lyrics, they are either selective in what they look at, so they still look at, say, the likes of Sandinista and are not so concerned about what he said or what was in his lyrics later on, or they don't know about Mescaleros because his influence in terms of, I use this thing called socialist realism in the book to understand his influence. And even though 
Stromer ceases to be a socialist, he still has an influence through socialist realism of helping people become socialists, which is a paradox and a contradiction, but it's, you know, one of these things that is true in life. Nothing's ever smooth and straightforward. I'm glad you mentioned the uh, socialist realism because you compared it to social realism, and both of those approaches are very important in trying to get a message across. Socialist realism, you also mentioned the fact that it wants to not only ameliorate the effects of capitalism, but abolish it too. And in the early days, it seems that Joe was very displeased with the effects of capitalism. And that may have happened starting in the 60s when he had his, you know, moment of awakening from the summer of 68. And you mentioned that later in his life he became a humanist, but wasn't he sort of a humanist the whole time? Yes, I do recognize that in the book, that there's an element of humanism that runs throughout all of his life. I think the issue is, what's to the fore, you know, at any one point in time? Is it more humanism? Is it more socialism? Is it more something else in terms of environmental awareness? That humanism is like a thread, an unbroken thread that runs through his life. And it starts in, you know, even before the clash, when he's a squatter and he helps other people squat in West London. But it's also there in the sense that the first gigs, the first shows that the 101ers played were for the exiles from Chile, the political exiles from Chile, people who left Chile and moved to London so they could escape torture and death at the hands of uh, General Pinochet, whose coup was supported by the United States government at the time in 1973. So there's all that running through it. And I think, as I say, this is an issue of what's to the fore, what's given more priority. And I think there's less priority given to the humanism, if you like, at a certain point of his life, and then it kind of re-emerges. I say that because there is a strand of political philosophy called socialist humanism or uh, humanist socialism, but I don't think he was either of those. He was more a socialist and then a humanist, or say a humanist, then a socialist, then a humanist again. They're blended together, man. I think that, you know, it's hard to say because I think we all have switches in this and some of them tend to be one way or another. I think that's where a lot of people in our culture are conflicted because a lot of their switches are stuck, man. And I think that this is all good because we're talking about all this stuff. And I think it's funny because we don't usually get into all the geopolitics of things behind the music. Music. But here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, we're known to go off on a regular basis. Gregor Gall's our guest. He's written this really cool book. We're deep into it called The Punk Politics of Joe Strummer. So we're talking about all this stuff, the world political views, and uh, I guess even a more narrow view, some of the things, talking about the things in Britain and whatnot, all under the eye of this uh, influence of the world on Joe Strummer and then Joe's influence on the rest of us as we're, I guess, the disseminees of all the stuff that he was gathering and sending out to us, both in interviews and through the music. And I just think it's cool for me to sit here with two guys who discovered the clash later on. You two are as excitable about this band as almost anybody that I know, even the people I know who went to see them at all the little shows and all that. So I think, though, we've been going for a while, Marcus. I'm thirsty. You know, that means we need a cold one from Crooked Eye, our one sponsor. And when we're running like this, Gregor, we uh, tend to get uh, sweaty feet. And that's why we got to change our bold foot socks. They have been our sponsor for a while now, and they keep your feet dry when you're running hard. That's all I'm going to say. And this is definitely an episode where I feel like we're running fast on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. So let's pause for everything. The socialist agenda aside, we have to take care of the capitalistic business of podcasting here on the imbalanced history. And we'll be right back with Gregor. 
It's fall, and I know, Marcus, that you've got a ton of anecdotal stories about your feet and riding and running and all that stuff that you do in the fall. And I know bold foot socks are part of your regiment, right? Absolutely. They wick moisture off your feet and keep them dry. I do wear the bold foot socks when I bike, and never, ever have I had swampy feet. And I've ridden on almost a 100-degree heat index day, and my feet right. weren't this swampy. Summer especially, so, right? yeah, I really like what they do. And another bonus is they're American-made. Boldfoot Socks is a company that uh, Josh got into because he did a 100K thing. Where, who could, Man, who has time for that, man? He's amazing. So he goes and does this 100K in these Boldfoot Socks, and the socks perform so well, he believes, and he's right, that these socks are really going to revolutionize footwear for people who work out and ride, especially uh, someone like you who rides a lot on their on their bike. And let's not forget, Josh did that like hundred mile run in the Nevada desert. That what? is gnarly and tough. And he donates portions of his sales to military charities, which is awesome. So go check out their amazing variety of colors and styles. Great socks, and you can find them all at boldfoot.com. Thanks to them for their support of the podcast. As always, Boldfoot Socks, American grown, American sewn. So much has been happening this year and changing at Crooked Eye Brewery, our sponsor for a long time now, Marcus. Since 2014, they've been pouring the cure for what ails you, but then they added craft cocktails. Then they added ciders. And recently, they opened the Crooked Eye Kitchen and Salty Vets Barbecue being served at the premises. You used to have to bring something with you. Now just bring your appetite. The long-term business plan of Crooked Eye has been very smart. Whatever they were going to do before the pandemic had to change drastically, and they've made the adjustments. And as we've slowly opened up, they've slowly continued to add and add and create more. And it's much to the delight of the people going in there all the time, because like you've said, every night's a party, a different kind of party over That's at Crooked Eye. It's and a random party. what the music is, like the Blues Jam or the second Tuesday of the month with my vinyl night, which is anything you want it to be. The Crooked Eye Band and all the other performers who make it fun, Mafia, all performing. Check it all out. And the way to find out about who's playing when is on their Facebook. That's really the best way to keep up, but the website too, I guess. So if you're looking for a place to go, make a plan, grab a friend, meet at Crooked Eye in the heart of Hatboro, serving you since 2014. The Starbucks Pistachio Latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. It's the imbalanced history of rock and roll, digging into the punk rock politics of Joe Strummer with Gregor Gall. Gregor, this is an interesting book that you put out there because the premises are not foreign to a lot of us. We kind of grasped what you're saying and the little twists and the things that you're teaching us in this book 
are adding to the growing lifelong learning profile about the only band that matters, The Clash, and Joe Strummer <laughs> in it. And uh, on this podcast, we kind of have different roles. Wouldn't you say, Marcus? We're like, we kind of dance together. We're yes. funny podcast dance partners. One of the things that I love about this man, Gregor, is that he is uh, Generation 1, Jump in the Fire Chaos Boy, ba- all the way back to when he was a little guy, and he picked up on punk rock and all that stuff. And for that's why he laughed when he said the only band that matters is <laughs> <laughs> he felt, and then, well, we, we talk about them all here on yeah. the podcast. So having you on is really a learning experience for us as well as for the audience. So thanks about that. Before we get back to questions and stuff, what is the best place for people to get your book? Well, I would advise you not to go to Amazon. I would advise you to go to the uh, website of the publisher, which is Manchester University Press, MUP. And it's available there to order anywhere in the world, whether you're in Europe or in North America. So Manchester University. University Press is the place to go to. And we'll put the link on the episode summary anywhere you get your podcast, really. So it's out there. Just click. And before I ask my next question, do you have a Twitter, Instagram account that you want to share with people or a Facebook page, any social media information you want to share? I don't use Instagram. My Twitter handle is left academic. So all one word, left academic. In one of your conclusions on page 19, you asked two main questions. What did people mean when they said Joe Strummer changed their lives? And what was the nature of the change? Why did it come about? How did it come about? And when did it come about? But you also said on page 32 that people who were influenced or impacted by Joe Strummer also had critical periods in their lives. After that, what did you uncover about the people and their critical periods? What I discovered was that certain people and Strummer's lyrics at certain points, certain different points for each person. There were certain things that happened in their lives that made them more aware or Strummer's lyrics were illuminated in a sort of brighter, sharper, starker way to them. So some of it was about understanding what was going on with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, which was from the late 1970s on, and obviously it became a big issue in America through the illegal funding of the Contras. There was that involved Ronald Reagan and Colonel North, Oliver North. So when people were aware of that, and there were things like Nicaragua Solidarity Campaign in Britain, when people could hear about the Sandinistas on the class Sandinista album and then that started to open up their horizons and then they would be more aware and listen more to what might come out from say the Nicaragua Solidarity campaign and then some of them wanted to do more than just you know donate and work for raising money for the Sandinistas in Britain some of them actually went to Nicaragua and worked on farms to help you know grow crops and so on to feed the people so that kind of thing it depended at a time whether you were young whether you were able to go and you know move halfway across the world to do certain things so it depends on that kind of thing but it also depends on you know maybe almost like 10 years earlier if uh, in 1976-77 when punk was starting to break loads of people found the, the lyrics of White Riot which is all the powers in the hands of the people that are rich enough to buy it.
that advocacy of basically rioting or demonstrating that was in the in, in that lyric that meant something to people at the time because of the rioting that was going on because of the clashes with the Nazi National Front. So, you know, it depends how old you were, what city you were in. If you were, I grew up in the northeast of Scotland, so it was miles away from anything. You know, Glasgow and Edinburgh, the biggest cities, were miles away. But if you were in London at the time, or Manchester or Birmingham, it would mean something quite different to you. And so right. people got into it. And uh, if I could just say, one of the key things that really stood out again and again in people that I interviewed for the book was going to a single gig, a single festival. It's called against racism it was in victoria park in london yeah. on the 30th of april 1978 and the clash didn't even headline that uh, festival there was about 80,000 to 100,000 people turned up to see the, the the bands play the band that actually headlined it was the, the tom robinson band the clash were the second last band to play but they blew everybody away and people said that was a day that changed their lives and that includes people like billy bragg it's always good to share information about bands that we love including the clash one of our favorites. You referenced this in the book that in 2003, Knowles referred to the band's political views as vague and impressionistic. What's your view of that comment? Because I never saw them as vague. I don't understand how anybody could say that of The Clash and particularly of Strummer. Whatever Strummer said was always quite clear and wasn't ambiguous. Now, Mick Jones, Paul Simonon, Mickey Topper Hedden were the other three members of the classic Clash lineup. They were not politically animated and motivated by Strummer Consequently, they didn't necessarily offer any political opinions. So even Chris Knowles' comments for them doesn't stand up, but it certainly doesn't stand up for Joe Strummer. So I'm not sure where that came from. You also posed that question, was the band's influence short and superficial or more long-lasting? And when I hear what's going on today and I hear a lot of the clashes feel in younger bands, I feel their influence may be more now than any time as I have in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, I think there's some evidence for that. Um, when I'm doing talks, on the Strummer book, people ask me, so who do you think are the kind of bands that are in any way similar to The Clash and to the likes of Joe Strummer? And some of the bands that people mention, obviously, are like Rage Against the Machine, but also a band, a British band called The Idols. And I think there is something to what they say in that some of these bands are social realists in terms of their lyrics. They talk about what's wrong. They talk about why it's wrong or how it's come about to be wrong. But what they don't do Unfortunately, in my view, and this is the thing that Strummer was able to do, is start pushing people towards what's the solution and how do you go about creating the solution? And he didn't say join a particular political party or a community campaign or a union, anything like that. He just said, do something about it. If you think these views are important, do something about it, whatever it is. And he let people choose their own way to get there. So some became members of far-left parties, others, you know, became community campaigners, and so on and so forth. And I think that's what's lacking. And, you know, the likes of Stormzy and the grime scene in Britain, Stormzy's probably the biggest kind of um, most well-known figure in the grime scene that's come out of London in the last, I don't know, you know, five, ten years. He's unusual in that he supported Jeremy Corbyn, who was the leader of the left-wing leader of the Labour Party up until 2020. But, you know, he's the exception that proves the rule in that in that aspect. Is there something you learned about Strummer in the process of writing your book 
it surprised you? It sounds a bit immodest to say it, but no. <laughs> and the reason for that is that, that I followed a lot of what he did and a kind of anarchist interest in what he was doing. So there wasn't really anything I found out that was new. The only thing that I wasn't able to get into the book in a couple of instances was I remembered a phrase from years and years ago that he'd said or an interview that he did, but I couldn't actually track it down in the end. And frustratingly, one of the interviews I had is on a, an old uh, cassette tape and the tape's so old that it's stretched. I must have listened to it so many times that I can't now decipher what he was saying. So, no, there wasn't anything new that I learned because I say I always took a keen interest in him. But it's the level of detail and then what I could do with it that I think is different from what it would have been five, ten years ago. I had intended to write the book for the 10th anniversary of his death in 2012, but other academic work got in the way. And so I was determined to make sure that it came out. A question I have is, do you find it odd that right wingers might still like the clash? Yeah, I do find it not funny humorous, funny strange. Um, because... Uh, what it means is basically that they either don't know what the lyrics are That's or right. they completely ignore what the lyrics are. Yeah, there's an interesting tale in Britain when Boris Johnson, he's still the current, but he will be shortly become the former Prime Minister of Britain. When he was asked a few years ago what his favourite bands were, he said either The Clash or The Rolling Stones. And nobody believed him. It seemed to be there must have been some political advisor said, oh, you know, if you say this, you'll come across as being a bit more hip than you actually are. But what happened was that it gave rise to a group being formed called Clash Fans Against the Right. And it's a, a group read, uh, led by somebody called Richard Chorley, who met in New Strummer. He's a filmmaker and he's currently off the back of this group, Clash Fans Against the Right. He's making a film called Resistance Street, which will nice. be out hopefully later this year. It's about how music can be used as a way to counter racism and fascism and so on in particular. So Boris Johnson's not the only one that said that he likes The Clash. In fact, a slightly interesting aside is that when he was on this programme called Desert Island Discs in 2005, when he was then the Mayor of London, when you go on Desert Island Discs, you get to choose, I think it's seven or eight songs that you can take with you to this desert island where you get stranded. It's a kind of hypothetical yeah. situation. The Clash song that he chose was Pressure Drop. song written by Nick Jones, which is about love, young love at school. It's nothing political at all. So 
maybe when he said, you know, if there was any truth to the fact that he said he liked The Clash, it was his favourite band, you would have to only give him <laughs> credence to choose a very, very small number of songs that were, you know, completely non-political and basically were love songs. But I do find it intriguing that right-wing politicians do say that they like The Clash because of that. But at the same time, there are other politicians who, in Britain and Canada, because there's just been a thing called Strummerfest uh, take place in, uh, in Ontario in Canada, and one of the people that supported that Strummerfest is uh, a New Democratic Party member of the, the Canadian Parliament. So he was inspired by Strummer to go on and he's become a politician. So I think the number of people who were inspired to do the kind of things that Strummer would have wanted them to do far outweigh outnumber those that have gone completely the other way. We're talking with Gregor Gall, the author of The Punk Rock Politics of Joe Strummer. Gregor, what were the most touching or insightful sources for your book about Joe? I think the, the fact that so many people were willing to give me testimony and give me testimony in considerable amount of detail to explain what exactly Strummer meant to them, what his lyrics meant to them, how they touched their lives. And I'll give you one example, a woman who would have been early 20s in 1983 she went to the US Festival which was in San Bernardino in Southern California. It was the festival that Steve Wozniak put on. It was trying to have a, like a Woodstock for the 1980s but you know on the other side of America and uh, when the clash finally they were headlining the kind of new wave night. It was a Saturday night and when they finally took the stage quite late on the night Strummer was really really wound up. He was very angry because the ticket prices had increased and he was along with other members the Clash basically trying to blackmail Steve Wozniak into giving money to a, a project for a, you know young unemployed kids in, in South Central LA. So when he came on, he was really, really angry and annoyed, and he starts a, a massive diatribe against American capitalism, American imperialism, consumerism, the whole shebang. And this is the line that this woman remembers, and that was a major change on her life. He's saying that no change is going to happen unless people make it happen. He says there's no one way down the middle of the road. Change start to happen from all sorts of people and he says the people of south central la they ain't gonna stay there forever now this is you know nine years before the riots over rodney king's death but what he's saying is those people are going to revolt and they should revolt and the revolt's going to be important and that she was somebody that lived in uh, south central la that really struck home for her that he'd actually mentioned her home area and that he thought something of it rather than just castigating it as people who are wasters and nerdy wells so she got into the clash from hearing that you know she was there she obviously liked them but she got into them really really heavily so that was a very touching thing for her to explain to me she had effectively she had an epiphany at that time because of what Strummer said in a previous podcast that we did about the clash a statement that I made that I believe Gregor is that the 70s phase of punk rock died with the release of London Calling. That album completely changed the punk movement. You had hardcore breaking off. You had the alternative uh, sounds, the post-punk starting to break off. You had bands like Gang of Four and Gen X and a few others that were coming out of the woodwork as well that weren't punk but were more post-punk. Do you think that it's an accurate statement that punk rock may have ended with the release of London Calling? <laughs> yes and no. Um, I think punk that started in 76, 77, it, if you like, did kind of end 
symbolically ended with the release of um, London Calling the Album on the 14th of December 1979. And as you rightly say, because of the change in musical style, particularly from the first and second album, so there's like many different styles that were encompassed in, in London Calling. And I think certainly Strummer and Mick Jones were of the view that they couldn't stay where they were. They had to progress musically. And that's recognition that no matter how good the lyrics are, if the music isn't up to the lyrics, then you know, you're interested in, in the lyrics or even in the music. So they had to change. And it's one of the things I say in the book is I didn't realise for many years why I only had Clash albums. And it was because so many different styles of music were played and performed by the Clash. So that's the yes. The no is, unfortunately, that there were several waves of punk bands. You know, the Clash, the Sex Pistols, the Damned, the mm-hmm. Bus Cops, they were, if you like, the first wave of punk bands. Mm-hmm. There's a second wave of punk bands came out in the late 1970s, like the Angelic Upstarts. And then when I was a young teenager in the 1980s, I was much more aware of the third wave. Bands like Antipasti, the Anti-Nowhere League, Chronic Generation, Vice Squad. And the reason why I'm very critical of them is that their lyrics were very basic, but their music was almost tuneless. And therefore, I didn't show any ability to develop punk it was just you know the classic kind of three chords thrash which you know has its time and its place but if you want to develop a musical genre you know that's a dead end and it's interesting that very much later on in his life he looked back and he said actually i wish we hadn't done what we did because he thought that they moved away from punk too quickly and in doing so really depleted the power that punk could have had as a as a movement i mean punk as a social movement was a very sort of short-lived phenomenon maybe two, three years. Within inside itself, there were different kind of um, tendencies. Clearly the class were on the political left-wing side, but others who were just like anti-establishment, and some of them clearly dabbled with fascism as well. So Strummer did look back and say that maybe it was a mistake to have done that, but at the time he was absolutely certain, along with Mick Jones, that it was the right thing to do. And I think, generally speaking, you know, that when they did move away from punk as a sort of straitjacket in a musical form is the right thing to do because much of the Clash's other great work comes from the period you know after London Calling in fact London Calling as a double album is a phenomenal album and it couldn't have been done without that shift in their heads it's quite an insight to get that he had the thought later in life to look back and see that fork in the road we all take forks in the road and to have looked at that one for him and said what if I'd taken the other road? I wanted to throw this out there as kind of a fun exercise to wrap things up, guys, here on The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's what if Joe had? Like the first question, what if Joe had stayed with Mick in The Clash? Or the other way around? Bernie would have had to go. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and what's your view of the Bernie factor, Gregor? We wanted to ask you about that. Well, he clearly has his good side and his bad sides. I mean, the good side obviously was bringing the whole thing together in 1976. The bad side was his attempt to control things to a much greater extent than he right. should have done and that they wanted him to. Hence, he was sacked. Uh, he was against the Clash playing the Rock Against Jesus festival that I mentioned earlier. And then, of course, Strummer basically said, I'll leave the Clash unless Bernie Rhodes has been brought back because the problem with the Clash was they were was in debt. They were always spending more than they were earning in terms of recording studios and everything else. So, And it was Bernie that put on things like the, uh, the Bonds International a casino, you know, gigs in New York that ran in 1981, and that was when the likes of the uh, El Salvador Solidarity Committee were able to address the crowds every night. 
So Bernie did many things, but ultimately, certainly in Strummer's view, it was that uh, Bernie got rid of Mick so that Bernie could become Mick. And Bernie wasn't a musician, and I think unfortunately that's shown in Cut the Crap because it's an album that could have been great, but it's an album that isn't great because of Bernie Rhodes' involvement. So to go back to your question... That's a polite way of putting it, and I, and I thank you for that, Gregor. There's two things that people should know about Cut the Crap. One is that the demos of it are available on YouTube, so you can actually hear the way the songs were intended to be by Strummer. Then, just recently, at the end of last year, I don't know how it's been done, but somebody has basically deconstructed the Cut the Crap album and re reconfigured it in a way that shows you more likely how it should have been, how it could have been. And again, that's available. Does it suck uh, less? Oh, absolutely. It's if you type in Mohawk Revenge, cut the crap into uh, YouTube, you'll come up with the, the whole album that's been done. It's a tremendous work that somebody, a tremendous service that somebody has done for us. So that and the demos give you an idea. And I, I think that one of your what if questions, you know, would be what if the clash didn't split. And I think that even with that Mark II version, if the album had come out and it had been anything like it was when I heard the clash play those songs three times in London at the Brixton Academy in 1984, the clash would carried on not forever but for much longer going back to your question what, what would happen if mick and uh joe had stayed together i don't know is the answer I, I can't really see that they could have stayed together they were going in such different directions mick jones was much more comfortable with becoming a, a pop star joe strummer wasn't mick jones was much more comfortable with the financial you know benefits of the likes of uh, combat rock becoming sure. you know a massive selling album joe wasn't joe always had this tension that he could never resolve in his own head and ironically i say he could never resolve it. He, ironically, he did resolve it in the last years of his life. When the Mescaleros were on Hellcat Records, which is a, a record label founded by Tim Armstrong that was of the band Rancid, it was an album where there was no great commercial pressures put on him. In fact, it was more likely that Hellcat Records was going to lose money on Strummer. They didn't in the end, but Strummer felt much more at home, so the commercial pressures weren't there. The touring right. pressures weren't there. He the was economy to, of scale for a small label and all that. Yeah, absolutely. So he was able yeah. to do something that he would have wanted to have done back in the days of the clash. So I don't think Strummer and Jones could have stayed together. I think we were on paths that were already diverging. And that gig that I mentioned, the one in San Bernardino in Southern California in 1983, that was Mick Jones's last gig. Didn't know it at the time, but it was his last gig. Next question. What if Joe had applied himself to politics or political office and change? Marcus, I know you have views on this too. I think if he had done it, he would have made a much bigger impact. For how long, I don't know. But the writer is, he was never going to do that. In the book, I quote him as saying that he was not a committee man. He wasn't an organiser. In fact, there's a whole mm -hmm. chapter on the book, which is called Advocate Not Activist, which speaks to the fact that Strummer was, you know, writing lyrics, making pronouncements when he was on stage, you know, being really belligerent in interviews. But it wasn't about formulating political program, a party manifesto, standing in elections. So it's a hot-end question that's intriguing, but ultimately it's one that I don't think would have ever happened in practice, even if many of us might have wished that it would happen in order that uh, the politics behind Strummer were given a wider reading. One last question. What if Joe had focused on the financial path towards change, aggregating wealth and using it to change the system instead of trying to change the system with music. Well, again, interesting that in the book, I quote that there were many promises that Joe Strummer made, which speaks to what you're suggesting. He tried to set up a radio station 
He tried to set up a new label that was going to be owned by the artists on it. He tried to set up a music program. He was going to set up a, a venue, like a club where, where up-and-coming bands could play. Many of those things, ironically, ended up being done by the Joe Strummer Foundation, which was originally founded as Strummerville. But Strummer was great at making promises and not delivering on them in you know, concrete terms. He wanted them to write a lyric about you know uh, anti-imperialism. You know, he'd do that in an instant. But if they asked him to do something about, you know, delivering on promising to set up a new radio station, he wasn't good at that. That's not where his focus was. Um, so we can never really test him out on whether if he had done all those things that he would have been more or less effective, more or less successful, just in terms of, you know, doing what he did do. So I still have a hard time seeing him as the guy in the suit with the briefcase, no matter what country he would be working in or where he'd be based. You know, to me, he's always the guy with no sleep leaves and whatever jeans are tucked into the boots guitar slung on sneering yeah. a bit and changing the world with an attitude and uh, a book like this gives us so many different facets of the man gregor gall our guest he wrote the book the punk rock politics of joe strummer and find it anywhere but not at the a place i don't even like to say their name <laughs> I don't care if they run ads inserted into the show. I don't care. Do you want to give out the uh, website again where people can find the book? And do you have your own website where people can get more information about you, Gregor Gall? No, I don't. But let me just give you the, the address of the publisher, Manchester University Press, is just all one word, manchesteruniversitypress.co.uk. UK and the book is available there. It's available in the softback. It's also available in electronic as in a Kindle format, so you can buy it either format. And it's available in the United States as well. As a basic human being, as a father and a humanist in nature, I want to thank you for the writing you've done about the plight of sex workers and exploitation of sex workers around the world in your time. So keep doing what you're doing, man. And thanks for checking in with us from Spain, right? You live in Spain now? Yeah, I live in Spain now, yeah. In a few years' time, you might want to have me on when I've written another book, which is, there was a British band called The Redskins. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. No. They were a band who existed for about five years and they were members of a Trotskyist party. And they were one of the few examples you can find of where almost like the band is set up to be political. You know, that's the purpose of it. It's, you know, yes, they're into the music, but it's also uh, really about politics. And the music I happen to really, really like, it's actually a kind of combination of punk and jazz and soul. And the only other band that I could find that was set up like them was a band founded by the Black Panthers in uh, San Francisco in 1968 called The Lumpen. They existed for a very short period of time, but they didn't create their own music. They tended to sing other songs and change the lyrics. So I'm going to be writing this book on the Redskins. Their last gig was in September 1986, so I'm going to try and hit September 2026 for the kind of you know cool. time of publication. So. Cool. Well, loop us in early on the preview, so we're up to speed the next time we speak about that. But between here and there, we may need you to come back and talk more about Strummer. I'd be delighted to. I've enjoyed that very, you know, this afternoon, but, well, this morning, sorry, for you very much. So, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. We'd love to have you back. Thank you so much for your time, Gregor. We appreciate Not it. Not so. Thank you for your time. Seriously. Not man. so. Well, if you've got something you'd like to add, all you got to do is send us an email to imbalancehistory at gmail.com. We post all the episodes on our social media, Facebook and Twitter. So if you see the episode, you can click right there or just find it wherever you get your podcast, which should be just about everywhere by now. Right, Marcus? Yep. We are on pretty much every single solitary podcast platform that is out there. 
doggy. Until the next time we gather in the Dark Doc Studios on the Pantheon Podcast Network, I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.